Uh, it feels like we're kind of going through this very quickly, but John chapter 5. And uh, one of the things I think is going to help us today is that this chapter really begins to show us what is at stake in our response to Jesus, both positively and negatively. So far in John's Gospel, um, kind of the main responses we've seen to Jesus have really been interest and inquiry, even kind of following and faith. But what happens from chapter 5 on, we, we really start to see some resistance and some hostility, even some outright rejection of Jesus. And as the curtain begins to lift on all of that, uh, so too it begins to lift uh, not just on the benefits of following Jesus, but also on the consequences of rejecting him. And in a part of the world where so many already seem set on that path, I think it's these very truths that will help us to trust confidently and to serve sacrificially and to persevere joyfully and to pray continually and to witness confidently. So two headings uh, to kind of help us through this morning. First of all, the problem Jesus solves, and then after that, the problem Jesus creates. We begin with the problem Jesus solves. Last week in chapter 4, Jesus was deep in Samaritan country on his way from Jerusalem and Judea down in the south back up to Galilee in the north of the country. But now in chapter 5, he's back in Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals, as any faithful Jew would have been several times every year. There was in Jerusalem a particular place where a particular group of people used to gather waiting for a particular event to occur. The particular place was a pool. Uh, its Aramaic name was Bethesda. It was by the gate called the Sheep Gate. It was covered by five colonnades. The particular group of people was a large number of the disabled, the blind, the lame, the paralysed. Uh, the event they were waiting for is, is explained most likely in a footnote, if your Bible's anything like mine, the, the kind of end of verse 3 and the missing verse 4. It was the swirling up of the waters of the pool, supposedly by an angel of the Lord, and it was commonly held that the first person into the pool once the waters were stirred would then be healed of whatever disease or disability they had. And so at this pool, this group of people, this is a very desperate group of people, right? The afflictions they were afflicted with are completely beyond the, the reach of normal medicine at the time. Their lives have been put completely on hold. And they've been reduced to spending entire days, weeks, months, maybe even years here at the pool watching the waters. And yet even among this very needy group of people, there was one man who stood out. He had been an invalid for 38 years. It's an exceedingly long time for such an affliction. I try to think back to everything that I have done in life since I was nine years old. And all of the things that I would not have been able to do or to enjoy if I suffered what this man suffered. I guess from him, our 5Ks from home would have felt like travelling the world. And Jesus sees him lying there and he learns how long this man has been in this condition and he asks the man if he wants to be made well. And I don't think we're really meant to expect Jesus didn't already know the answer. 
But Jesus does want to redirect the focus of the man's attention. Because you see, at this point, the man's got eyes only for the pool. As far as he's concerned, that is his only source of hope. And yet, as he says in verse 7, when the waters are stirred, he's got no one to help him into the pool. And so someone else always gets the jump on him. But then in verse 8, Jesus says to the man, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. And the healing is immediate, isn't it? And it's complete. As we see so often in the Gospels, Jesus' words are powerful words and they are life-giving words. Because Jesus himself is fully divine, Therefore, his words are spoken with God's own authority. And since God's authority is absolute, therefore there is no obstacle and no hindrance and no effect of sin in this world that is not immediately turned back by a word from Jesus. A wedding without wine? Jesus spoke and the wine was abundant. A hungry crowd of thousands, Jesus spoke, the crowd ate, and still there were leftovers. A man born blind, Jesus spoke, and he went home seeing. Jesus' own friend, Lazarus, in the tomb four days, Jesus spoke, and the dead man walked out. And now here in chapter 5, a 38-year invalid who couldn't get into the pool, Jesus spoke, and he was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. And so Jesus' words are powerful words and they are life-giving words. And yet the thing we really need to grapple with here is that as wonderful as this miraculous healing from Jesus was, it isn't an end in itself but simply a sign and a pointer to an even greater reality, which is that this man had an even greater problem from which he needed Jesus to deliver him than his long years of suffering as an invalid. And you see, that's why sometime later, Jesus finds the man in the temple and he says to him in verse 14, see, you are well again. Stop sinning. Or something worse may happen to you. Friends, there is such an important insight here for us to grapple with. Uh, I hope this verse and these words will really kind of burst their way onto our consciences in the week ahead and lay down deep tracks in our hearts and minds. I think they are especially important given our context today with an ongoing global pandemic and us now in the eighth or ninth week of lockdown, I can't really remember, and no obvious relief in sight or even in the context of the distressing news we've heard this week from Afghanistan or from Haiti or from the ICCC's recent report on the global climate. Because you see, as serious as each of these things is, and they are serious and distressing, and each one of them ought to prompt us to prayerfully cry out to God for relief, that he might comfort his people and protect the vulnerable and show mercy even to those who don't deserve it. But even so, what Jesus says here in John 5 is a solemn warning to us. 
that not one of these situations is the worst thing that can happen to a person and which will certainly happen to every person who does not turn back to God in repentance and faith. Because, you see, that's what Jesus means when he tells the man to stop sinning. He's calling the man, just as he calls each of us as well, to put away all of our natural hostility towards God, to put away all of our natural rejection of God, to put away all of our natural disregard for God and to put our trust in Christ who came to save us from sin. It's not that the man's desire to be made well was improper. Jesus never rebuked him for wanting to be healed, far from it. He showed the man extraordinary compassion and he healed him completely. But that physical healing was never meant to be the end of the matter. And so Jesus actively seeks him out later on and warns him that something worse may happen to him than being an invalid for 38 years, which is to face the judgment of God unprepared. And therefore, the most urgent thing that he must do is to repent and to believe, to turn from his sin and to trust in Jesus. Friends, as we endure these long months of lockdown, we long to be released. And we earnestly pray that God might mercifully spare from sorrow the people of our city and our state and our nation and our world. Even so... COVID is not the worst thing that can happen to us. The worst thing that can happen to us is to face the judgment of God unprepared. And therefore, the most urgent thing we must do is take up Jesus' call to be reconciled with God by turning from our sin and trusting in him. Uh, Perhaps if we wanted to give ourselves a little test uh, just to, to see if we've, we've got things in the right gospel perspective, we could ask ourselves this question. Do we pray for relief from COVID more or less than we pray that people would be spared from the judgment of God by turning from sin and trusting in Jesus? Again, Do we pray about the political unrest in Afghanistan more or less than we pray that the gospel would spread rapidly throughout Afghanistan and in every country of the world? That people might be spared from the judgment of God by turning from sin and trusting in Christ. Uh, To look at it from another perspective, based only on the things that we read or that we post or that we talk about or if people could see into our hearts and notice the things that we fear, what would they conclude about what we consider to be the worst thing that could happen to a person? In our current crisis, which seems so all-consuming, maybe one way we can kind of retrain ourselves to have this eternal gospel perspective on things I just get a little 
piece of paper or a piece of card or a post-it note, something like that. Write on it the words, something worse may happen. And, and just stick it into our Bibles or whatever it is that we're reading at the moment or, or put it at the front of our prayer lists just as a little reminder to us that we do pray for the things that are necessary for the body. But even more urgently, we pray for the things that are necessary for the soul. The gospel teaches us that the judgment of God is real. And the only way to avoid it is the one that God has provided, which is to turn from sin and to trust in Jesus. And no reality is so important for us and for the world to know about. So that's the problem Jesus solves. And it's a wonderful solution that he gives us so kindly and so freely. Our sin and the coming judgment of God. Now, though, for the problem Jesus creates because uh, at the end of verse 9 we're told that uh, the day this all took place the healing of this man it was a sabbath day and that really brings the jewish leaders into play because they had made sabbath keeping uh, one of the most important requirements for the people of god and so in verse 16 we, we get a hint of the offense that they took from what jesus had been doing on the sabbath uh, we read verse 16 so because jesus was doing these things on the sabbath the jewish leaders began to persecute him now, there's a couple of different ways that Jesus could have tackled this. Uh, he could go all technical on them and point out kind of the distinction between the laws that God gave in the Old Testament and the kind of whole big tradition of man-made rules and regulations that they had developed. And, and he could distinguish between these two things. He could go very personal and he could kind of draw out the, the very mean spirit that kind of sits behind this uh, kind of fascination with rules that they have and completely overlooks the wondrous news that a 38-year invalid has just been made to walk again. It's a very mean spirit that, that notices one thing and ignores the other. But, but Jesus' normal way is to kind of go straight to the heart of a matter and to go to the thing that is most important, and that's what he does here. And so verse 17, in his defence, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Do we see what Jesus has done here? He's really lifted the whole conversation to a brand new level. Uh, this isn't the little leagues anymore. This is the big time. Uh, this is not just a dispute about something Jesus has done, a healing on the Sabbath. No, this is now a full-blown tussle over who Jesus is the only son of God who works just as his heavenly father works. Now, as far as the Jewish leaders were concerned, for Jesus to say this was nothing short of blasphemy, which is why in verse 18, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. But you see, in the end, even today, this is still the great problem that Jesus causes. The, the scandal of Jesus, the offence of Jesus, the uncomfortable challenge 
of Jesus is never really just a matter of the things that he did. After all, who doesn't love a man that could make a 38-year invalid walk again? Now, the scandal of Jesus is that he claims to be the only son of God. With all of the authority and power and the exclusivity that go along with that claim. With all of the submission and the allegiance that are owed to such a man. That is just a different matter entirely. And so now the stage is set and the stakes have been raised. Jesus has claimed to be the only son of God who works just as his heavenly father works. The Jewish leaders are incensed by his words. What will Jesus say now to try and persuade them? Well, obviously there's a a lot more detail in this uh, than we can go through now. In fact, from here to the end of the chapter is, is kind of the longest uninterrupted block of Jesus' teaching in the whole first half of John's gospel. Uh, For the sake of this morning, though, let me draw out three things briefly that I hope will kind of capture the burden of what Jesus says here. Uh, First of all, the son's work is what the father has shown him. Uh, That's really where Jesus starts. Verse 19, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? God the father and Jesus the son are completely united in all that they do. But there is also a sense of order. The son is completely dependent on the father. He can only do what the father does. The father is completely generous towards the son. He loves the son and he shows the son all that he does. Uh, We have a saying, uh, we, we sometimes say, like father, like son. Nowhere is that more true than as we consider the person, the life, the words and the works of Jesus Christ. He is the son of God whose work is what the father has shown him. Uh, Second thing Jesus says here, the son's work is to give life and to carry out judgment. Verse 21, for just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to those whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the son. Perhaps it seems strange to us that uh, the son's work would involve these two seemingly contradictory activities, giving life and carrying out judgment. Uh, In fact, one of the most common objections to Christian faith stumbles at exactly this point. Uh, Have you ever heard a person protest that if God is so loving and, and so all into forgiveness, how can he still judge people? But what they've misunderstood is that the work of God, which is now the work of the Son, it has two aspects to it. Yes, he gives life to whom he's pleased to give it, but he has also been given authority to judge. And it's not just verses 21 to 22 where we see this. Jesus says the same thing again in verses 26 to 27. For as the Father has life in himself, so he is granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. 
once again then, even as John's Gospel has already shown us on multiple occasions, it is no small thing either to accept or even to reject Jesus. In fact, our eternal destiny turns on it, on the response we make to Jesus, whether eternal torment or eternal bliss. For the Father has granted the Son both to give life and to judge. And yet, kind of the accent, the, the emphasis, the, the weight of the gospel always leads towards the offer of life. Because uh, right at the heart of these verses in verse 24, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. They will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Friends, are you listening this morning as someone who has not yet believed in Jesus? Hear these wonderful words that he says. Hear this challenge, this encouragement. Believe in him and you will escape judgment. You will cross over from death to eternal life. Are you listening this morning as someone who has already believed in Jesus? And I know that will be many of you. Well, hear these wonderful words of Jesus and, and be reminded of the grace in which you now stand. You have escaped judgment. And you have crossed over from death to eternal life. The final thing that Jesus says in this end section of John chapter 5, uh, the son's claim has lots of supporting evidence. Uh, this is really those last uh, sort of 15 or so verses that we didn't read before from verse 31 through to 47. And uh, I hope that you will come back to these verses uh, later today or, or later this week and, and ponder them. I think over my 30 years or so as a Christian, I continue to find that one of the most frustrating objections to Christian faith is, is also one of the most tenacious. Uh, namely, that it's just a blind leap of faith in the absence of evidence. I feel like I've heard that so many times. And I'm just not sure that anyone could really hold that position if they've read, read this final section of John chapter 5. Because Jesus' point to the Jewish leaders who are so offended by his claim to be the only son of God who does the work that his father has given him. His point is actually there is lots of supporting evidence upon which the acceptance of such a claim could be reasonably built. In fact, there is so much supporting evidence that actually it's the rejection of Jesus' claim that is now the unreasonable position. It's the rejection of Jesus' claim that is a leap of faith in, in the face of evidence. So aside from Jesus' own testimony, verse 31, there is, verse 33, the testimony of John the Baptist. Verse 36, there are the works that Jesus has done, like the healing of the crippled man. Verse 37, there is the testimony of the Father. 
From verse 39, there is the testimony of the Old Testament scriptures. Most of all, perhaps, at least as far as these law-loving Jewish leaders are concerned, there is in the last two verses the testimony of Moses, the one through whom the law was given. But you see, all six lines of evidence point in exactly the same direction, which is exactly the same direction that John's gospel as a whole points For us to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. Friends, to believe in Jesus is not a shot in the dark in the absence of evidence. The evidence is abundant. And if we were still in doubt in the days or weeks ahead, uh, we need only remember that there was a man by a pool near the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem. For 38 years, he had been an invalid. But Jesus said to the man, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the powerful words of Jesus that he is able to give life to whom he is pleased to give it because that is the authority that you have given him. And so help us to be people who pay attention to the evidence, who come to accept who Jesus is, your very own son that by believing in him, we might have eternal life in his name. Heavenly Father, help us to have an eternal gospel perspective on things, that we would recognise the reality of your coming judgment that you have also entrusted to your son, that we would remember uh, that something worse may happen than the trouble we might experience in the body in this world. But Heavenly Father, help us to cling to Christ, full of confidence, full of hope, because of what he offers us so clearly. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.